Good morning, church. This is your monthly mission moment of February 2024. This morning, I highlight Ann Clemmer's most recent update. Ann often writes about the challenges faced by those who live near Goma, where they serve. Volcanic eruptions, outbreaks of Ebola, constant threats from militia groups in the surrounding hills. There are also hundreds of children who live on the street in the city of Goma, their home in Eastern Congo. Many are orphans, parents killed by the militia or succumb to disease, others abandoned by their families, unable to care for them. They are ever present in the streets, sleeping on the sidewalks, begging for food at car windows, ragged and thin. Bill and Ann moved to Goma in 2016 and passed these children every day on their way to work. They would glance at them thinking, how sad, and then continue on their way. After the volcanic eruption of 2021, many of these children came to Sunday school, desperate for clothing, something to eat, and shelter. As Ann and Bill prayed about how to help them with their limited resources, they simply started with what they had, like food and clothing. In short time, God provided funding for a new building for full-time day program, and then additional funding for a transit shelter at night. They named the program Enfants Bien Aimés, or Beloved Children, just as God sees them. The program has been running for over a year and continues to bless not just the children, but also Anne and Bill. Now, as they drive through the streets of Goma, it's different. Anne sees them, not as a reminder of the violence, diseases, or conflicts, but as children who God dearly loves and challenges Anne and Bill to love them the same. In Luke 7, there is a story of a woman overcome by grief and sin, kneeling behind Jesus, and wetting his feet with her tears. Jesus turned to Simon and asked, do you see this woman? He wasn't asking Simon to reflect on the circumstances of her anguish, but rather to look at her, the one at his feet. He simply asked, Simon, do you see her? As Anne and Bill drove through the city streets when they first arrived, she saw with her eyes the plight of the children and the sadness at the circumstances which had befallen them. But she did not see them as God wanted her to. Now it is with her heart that Anne sees. Her heart aches when she sees them, homeless, abandoned, hungry, and cold. Anne says, I imagine this is what Jesus intended for Simon to see, the woman, not the sin or her circumstances. Elroy, one of the Hebrew names for God, literally means the God who sees me. What a comfort to know that our Creator sees us. But He also asks us to open our eyes and see with our hearts those we encounter along our paths. Last month, Pastor Eric challenged us to live out our church's mission. Anne's letter encourages the same thing. Let's open our eyes and see others with our hearts as the Lord does, children of God. Let's love others and lead them into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ.
Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> good morning, church. It's good to be together. Welcome to Porterfield. If you're here for the first time, we want to especially welcome you. If you've been coming here a long time, we are so glad you're here. We're just happy to be together, right? And it's a good time to praise the Lord. Would you stand and join us as we begin just turning our hearts, our attentions to him, giving him praise and honor and glory. Let us worship our king together. Amen. Here we go.
being a part of Porterfield Baptist Church is just seeing people use their talents, uh, seeing Devin back there playing drums and just watching him and the coordination it takes to play drums. I could never do what you do, but it's pretty cool. Um, but I, I'm so thankful for all of you that use your gifts and talents for the Lord. Uh, sign language that's going on right now. For those that help teach Sunday school, teach children's ministry. You know, that, that's the, the heart of a healthy church is when people are getting involved and helping serve in, in different capacities in different areas. So if you haven't found a place to serve or a place to work with others, I'd encourage you to think about and pray about that because it's just a great opportunity for you to get connected and help the, the ministry of the church continue to reach people for, for the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, right now I just pray for strength for all of us, and especially I, I pray for uh, the Funk family, Lord, that you just be with them and the loss of their loved one. We thank you and praise you, Father, that we know where he is, that he's in glory with you, that he's face-to-face with the one he served while he was here upon the earth, that he put his faith and trust in you as Lord and the Savior of his life. And Lord, I pray for all of us that go through hardships and difficulties, that you would help us to be there for each other, to have people alongside us on the journey, to give us encouragement, give us strength, pray for us. Thank you that that's happening and that will continue to occur. But Lord, we just thank you for being the God that you are, that through the journey of life, that you're always there through the ups and downs, you're always there for us. So I just pray, Father, that you would just give us the strength that we need to keep our eyes focused in on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for the resources that are given. Thank you for the progress that we see with the 
uh, parking lot being expanded. And Lord, we hope to do greater things for you. And Lord, it's not about us growing in numbers. It's more about us growing our people to reach more people for you. And Lord, we don't want to do anything for our own glory, but we want to honor and respect you and make sure people have a relationship with you, Father, to love and lead people into a life-changing relationship with you, Jesus. Thank you so much for the love you show us. Give us strength today. Be with the rest of our service and just continue to help us to glorify your name. In your precious name, I pray that you ask these things. In your name, Jesus, amen. Just hear the chance. You were the word at the beginning. One with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation.
Well, today we're going to start a new message series called Attitude of Christ. And the whole concept of this is really just talk about what was Jesus' intention? Why did he come? Why was he here? What was his purpose in being here? And so as we talk about this and talk about today, truth, this was the attitude he took on was to present and represent truth to the whole world. Uh, He was here to speak truth to all of us. To help us to see our need of Christ, of God himself. And so as we look at this, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and turn there. And again, the sermon notes are available to you on the Bible app, the Version Bible app, if you'd like to go under there and go under events and look up Porterfield. But the whole idea of this message uh, really 
uh, can take place anywhere. There's a lot of scripture that I could use today to talk about truth, but I really felt like God led me to stay on John chapter 8 or go to John chapter 8. And that's where we'll do most of our teaching from. But I also want to talk about John chapter 7 because there's a lead up to all of this. There's a lot of conversation that's going on. And John does a good job describing and making the case that Jesus is really trying to show who he really is. And he does a lot of good things pointing us in that direction. And this is really the the, the factor of how we respond to the truth. uh, How we take the truth in. How we allow the truth to speak to us in our own life. How we let the truth hit us. And what we do with truth in in us. Because I think a lot of us live a lot of things as living under a lie. We we try to fool ourselves. We try to trick ourselves. We try to convince ourselves of things that aren't true. And we don't really seek truth. But this is the attitude, the heart of Jesus when he came, was to represent truth. And, and just highlighting, these won't be on the screen, but just want to highlight some moments. In John chapter 7, verse 31, it says, Still many in the crowd believed him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? So there was already some debate happening as we're going to approach John chapter 8. There's already sort of debate happening is, who is this Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one we're looking for? Or should we look for somebody else? Or who's going to do greater works than this Jesus, this Messiah? If he's the Messiah or if somebody else is the Messiah, who's going to do more than what Jesus has done already? Because he's already done miracles. He's already performed and, and done these great things. He's already spoken wisdom to the masses. There's a lot of things happening. And they're like, is this the Messiah? Is this somebody that we can trust that we've been waiting for all these time that's been prophesied to us that the Messiah would come? And so in chapter 7, we see this question is asked. And later in the chapter, Nicodemus, and this is the same Nicodemus that was there with Jesus in John chapter 3, where he was asking Jesus about this idea about being born again. What's that mean? What does it mean to be born again? And it's also where we get John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This same Nicodemus in verse 50 kind of tries to stand up for Jesus a little bit saying this Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was the one of their own number in other words he is part of the Pharisees asked does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing so in other words there's already these accusations there's already these Pharisees who want to kill Jesus without really hearing from him because they don't want to hear from him Because Jesus represents truth. And a lot of times for many people in our world, even us Christians, and think about this, sometimes we give the Pharisees a little hard time, right? But they were the religious people. You ever thought about that? Sometimes I've thought about that. What it would be like if Jesus showed up in our time period? What if he waited till 2024 to come and start preaching and start teaching us about, and then he dies a year, a couple years later after his ministry starts. How would we as the church respond to Jesus? Would we let our man-made traditions and the way we worship God and the way we do things get in the way of seeing Jesus being the son of God? Or would we, our hearts be open to the truth and recognize him 
Sometimes we like to look back and say, well, if I was there, if I was the Pharisee, if I was the religious leader, if I'd known all the Old Testament, was known the promises of God, I would have saw Jesus, would you? Would you really have seen who Jesus was? I think a lot of us would not like the way Jesus did ministry. A lot of us would not be satisfied with him eating with sinners and tax collectors. A lot of us would be offended by how he approached things, how he dressed, how he looked. We would be upset and we would be offended by that. And we would not let him in. Because our hearts aren't seeking truth. We're more concerned about the way we operate, the way we think things should be in our own mind. Rather than really seeking what is true and what is real. And as we have this conversation today... I just want to highlight some words. You know, sometimes us pastors, we try to be creative and, and be funny. And, and I know sometimes I'm that way. But I just want to take the words that are given here today and just look at what the words are meaning and saying to us. And I could have picked more, but I settled on these few. Let's dive into John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people... He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is going to make this one statement about him being the light of the world. And the Pharisees and everybody else is going to get upset with this. They're going to get upset that he's the light of the world. They're going to become angry. Adam because of it. And so Jesus is making this statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I come from and I know where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. So Jesus is saying that his testimony is valid because he has done nothing wrong. And we'll see that play out here as we read this continual part of this chapter. That Jesus has done nothing wrong. His testimony is valid because he's never been proven wrong at anything. What he says is true because he's not doing anything that's deceitful or trying to uh, trick people or trying to deceive others. He's speaking what he knows. And he knows where he comes from and where he's going. He knows who he is. They don't know. They don't understand where he's come from. But the heart of it is, the, the real hard part of it is, they don't want to know. They don't want to know truth. Why don't we want to know truth as people? Because we're afraid of what the truth will reveal. We're afraid of the truth so many times because it'll change our perspective. Oftentimes when we're confronted with truth, then something has to change in us. And there's a lot of things that we don't want to change. There's a lot of things that we want to keep for ourselves. And we want to do it our way. Actually, as I think about it, it reminds me of the Lord of the Rings, so the precious, right? They're, Dan will appreciate this little tidbit that the ring is the precious, and it just absorbs 
the whole identity of the person because they put their attention towards that. When we gravitate towards things that are lies, it's like we can't let go. When the truth is right there. Definition of valid is having a second basis, uh, a sound basis in logic or fact, reasonable. So it's an argument. It's a point that's being made. It's Jesus saying, I am valid. My, My testimony is valid. What I'm sharing with you today and talking to you about is valid. You're claiming I'm not valid, but tell me how I'm not valid. How is my testimony not valid? And he says that the Father also testifies. In other words, What Jesus is saying here, all the miracles that I've done already, all the things you've seen me do, how can I not do that with God at my side doing it through me? God is my witness, he's saying. My testimony is valid because God is allowing me to do these miracles. I'm able to walk on water. I'm able to feed the 5,000 because God is the one that's validating me. And you have nothing against me. You have nothing to put against me to say that I'm a liar, that I'm a sinner, that I've done nothing wrong. And we'll dive into that here in a little bit. But let's move on to verse 16 and 18. But if I do judge, and let me, I should have stopped and said this too. You know how, you notice how Jesus says you judge by human standards? This is the trap that we all face. We oftentimes, our first initial is how it's going to affect our physical bodies, how it's going to affect our physical minds, how's it going to affect us personally, how's it going to affect us, right? We are not thinking most of the time how God wants to see things happen. We're thinking about ourselves. What is it going to do for me? What am I going to look like? How are people going to perceive me? Not truth. Jesus didn't care how people perceived him. He spoke truth. He wasn't trying to win people over by deceitful ways or hiding in some some way of denying his truth, but he was speaking plainly. He says, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with my Father, the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that Your testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus could have said other things. He could have said, well, John the Baptist has sent ahead of me. What about him? What about my disciples that have seen the miracles? What about all those that were fed with the 5,000? They could testify who I am. Jesus is making it clear that his testimony is sound. That his testimony. Testimony is trustworthy because it's not only him that verifies his work. God is verifying. And this is the reason why it's so important that we believe in a risen Savior because it's God who rose Jesus from the dead, validating everything that Jesus stood for, that he is the truth, he is the way, he is the life. So the word witness is this. It's evidence, proof, a person who has seen an event. And like I mentioned last week, we are witnesses to what Christ has done in our life, the change that occurred in my life and when I gave my life to Christ at nine and then when I rededicated my life at 16, the change that took place in my life was real. And it's still going on today. You have been changed by Christ. You are witnesses of what Christ has done in your life. 
And so as we as witnesses of what Christ has done, the, the wonderful work that he's accomplished in our life, that we share that with others. We share that with people. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to share that. Jesus himself is saying, look at the things I've done. Look at what I'm doing now. Look at me. But unfortunately, the Pharisees and those around did not really want to know him personally. They didn't really want to get to know him. They wanted to judge him. They wanted to look down upon him. They wanted to cast him out because they didn't want to change. They weren't willing to change their hearts. They weren't willing to obey. They weren't willing to serve. But Jesus wanted to embrace the truth that he knew, that he knew the Father. They knew who God was, that he himself was God in the flesh. Verse 19. Then Jesus asked him, where is your father? Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And it's interesting that this question is coming up because they're not really wanting to know they're not really wanting to run. They're trying to trap him or they're trying to, you know, just make him upset in some way. And, and again, they're thinking about the physical aspect of things rather than the spiritual aspect of things. He's talking about his heavenly father. They're focused on the earthly father. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away in verse 21. And you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. So here Jesus is, is just spelling it out. This is something that uh, in Romans we find that Paul really tries to help flesh out of what Jesus is meaning by this. But Jesus is saying it very clear. That if we don't have Jesus, we will die in our sins. That if we don't have Christ, that if we don't invite Christ in our hearts and our lives, he is the pathway for us to have salvation from our sins, to be forgiven of our sins. It's through Jesus Christ. He says, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. And of course, what happens here is the Jewish people start talking amongst themselves, which is always dangerous. Instead of going to the source to ask the question, they talk amongst themselves. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Will he commit suicide? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? They're afraid to ask certain questions because they're afraid of what truth may be revealed and they don't want to hear the whole truth. They only want to hear part of the truth. Or they don't want to hear it all at all. They want to trip him up in some way. They're speculating. A lot of times we ask questions behind people's backs instead of going to the source and asking. I think a lot of times the reason why we do that is because we're hurt, we're, we are afraid of the truth. We're afraid of being embarrassed in some way. But if we want truth, then we should ask and look for the truth. We should not be afraid to ask questions so that we can gain understanding. But yet they're spending time talking amongst themselves instead of continuing to have the dialogue with Jesus. But Jesus continues. In verse 23, he says, But he continued, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
I like to think of it like this, that Jesus has the bird eye view, right? He has the, the view that we don't have. We see everything here and we see our problems. We see our issues. We see what we want to see. We do what we want to do. It's about us. It's about me. Oftentimes we don't worry about so much about other people or concerned about other people. We're concerned about how it makes us feel, right? Instead of really thinking about what, what matters to Christ, what matters to Jesus, we start thinking inwardly about us. We're focused on ourselves instead of thinking about what God wants. What is God doing here? What does God want to done in the life of my life? And what does he want to do in the other people's lives? That we should all be seeking him. He's saying you're taking the wrong viewpoint here. You're from down here. You're, you're focused on these things. I'm from above. I see, I see what needs to happen. I see what needs to occur in verse 24, it says, I told you that you would die in your sins. Again, Jesus is re-clarifying this. I said you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. The challenge for all of us is what do we believe? You know, the reason why we have all these different religions and we'll get into this a little bit later, but the, 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 Satan is the father of lies, right? He wants to spread all kinds of lies. He doesn't care what kind of God you serve as long as you don't serve the God, as long as you don't accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And some of these religions sound like they're good. They do a lot of good things. They do a lot of good works. But if they don't focus on the fact that there is one God and that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world, we're missing it. It's Jesus Christ. And so whether you're a Mormon, whether you're, uh, you know, you can be a Jehovah's Witness, you can be a Muslim, and you can sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in there, but you have to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I didn't say that. You didn't say that. God said it. Jesus said it. And that's what matters. But the question is, are we going to believe? Are we going to trust that? Belief is this, having a belief is acceptance. It's as accepting it as true to feel sure of the truth and to have that knowledge that if I believe in something, I know it's true. I know it's true. And this is the Jesus came to show us the way, to show us truth. And the question is, is do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus is the truth? And this is the other thing that, that we oftentimes you know, like we talk about in our mission statement is we want to help people to understand that we love people. We want to lead people, right? We want to help them experience Christ. But Christ is the end goal. Having a relationship with Jesus is the end thing. We want everybody to experience that on their own. We want to help love and lead people to that relationship. But Jesus is the one that does the changing. And do we keep first thing first? In other words, is he my primary focus? Because we can get caught up in a lot of things, but we have to all agree on this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we have to choose whether we believe it or don't believe it. Verse 25, who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. Isn't this sad? It's like this is a, just breaks Jesus' heart, I'm sure. The question is, is, who are you? 
All this time, everything that Jesus has been doing is to show them the way, right? Everything that he's done is to point them to the fact that he is the son of God. That he and the God are one. And Jesus responds, just what I've been trying to tell you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say to you in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. So Jesus is saying, I, I, could, I could point some things out to you in your life. I could tell you about how you should be judged and how you should be looking at yourself right now. But I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to point the way of life. I'm here to be obedient to my Father. I'm here to let my light shine to the world so they will know how to find salvation. As Jesus mentions this word trustworthy, I just think about this word and I think it's something we should ask ourselves. It's able to be relied on and as honest and truthful. That, that God is trustworthy. That the God that, that, you know, Philip used Isaiah 53 that's written hundreds of years before Jesus even comes into the scene. And he uses Isaiah 53 to lead the eunuch to Christ. That God has set all this up and he prophesied and he sent prophets and he sent others to speak about him. And everything he demonstrated, whether it was the temple or whether it was the commandments, everything was set up to lead to this point where Jesus would show up and die for our sins. That the sacrifices, the sacrifice that Abraham was asked to give, God was the one that provided the lamb and his lamb is Jesus God is trustworthy God is trustworthy for many of us we have to put our faith and trust in God through the highs through the lows of this life we trust because he's trustworthy why because God's past performance in our life has been effective God's promises from the old testament to the new God is faithful and true he is worthy of being trusted with the things of our heart's life and the problems and the successes we have in this life. Verse 27. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you lift, have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. So he's talking about the day he's, he's put on the cross and he's raised up and he calls out and he hollers, it is finished. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed on him. And so it's interesting because the crowd is kind of getting torn because some are believing, some are choosing not to. Uh, some of them just have hatred for Jesus because he stands for truth. Their lies are being exposed. They're, they feel kind of out of whack because they should be in control of the situation because they're the religious leaders and they should be, he shouldn't be telling them what to do or who he is. They should be able to make that judgment and that decision of who Jesus is. And they're worried about losing power and authority when they had none to begin with. 
Because their control was fake. Because they are not God. And think about it. This is, this is nothing new. This is the struggle from Adam and Eve where I want to be my own God. I want to be God. I want to control my life. I want to dictate what happens. I want to be in charge. Instead of recognizing God's in charge, he created me and he loves me and he wants to use me not in a sense of just using a tool, but use me that brings glory to his name, that I am in relationship with him, and that I'm free from the sin that leads to death. The sin that leads to death. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, and are really my disciples. And what is he saying really? Is he saying you have to do extra things? He's speaking from the heart, the will. The part of you that makes this choice, the decisions that you make in your life, the, the, the very fabric of where you put your energy towards, where you spend your time with. If that is sincere, if that is real, then you're one of his disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Isn't that interesting that that's one of the statements that the world tries to use a lot? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that being used, but a lot of times they'll try to repackage it. But Jesus is the one that says it. Jesus says the truth will set you free, but then the context of why he says that is because you'll be free of sin because you're following Jesus, because Jesus is your savior and your Lord and he's the one that's guiding your life, not you. He's the one that's uh, taking you on the journey of your life. You're seeking him. You're free of your sin. The truth will set you free. Just think about that, to just be set free. I know this in my, my journey of faith, that when I allow sin to creep in my life, I become a slave to it. And we'll, we'll hear about this a little bit later here in just a sec. But it controls my life. It dictates because you become a slave to that sin. You don't have a control over that sin, whatever that sin is. And here in America, we've become really good at hiding our sins. We can do things on the computer that nobody will ever know about. We can mask it. We can put on the smiley face and act like everything's all right. But inwardly, we're dying inside because we know that there's something controlling us that we're not free of. And it says Jesus will set us free, free from sin. This problem that you have, whatever you're addicted to, whatever you're going after, whatever you're pursuing, that Christ can set you free from your sin. He can set you free. But you have to believe, you have to put your faith and trust in him, knowing that God is trustworthy, that he sent his son to die upon a cross for all of us to set us free. They answered, in verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants we, and have never been slaves of anyone. See how they take it back to the physical? <laughs> They're thinking, hey, we've never, I've never been a slave. I'm Abraham's descendants. I've never had chains on my arms. I don't have any scars from the chains or anything. How am I a slave? 
They're not thinking inwardly. They're not thinking here. They're not thinking what's been going on inside them. This is what God cares about. God cares about your spirit, your soul. He cares about what you have inside you, not your body as much. I mean, God does care about that too, but it's greater importance for your soul and your spirit because that's what lives forever. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves. Anyone, how can you say that we shall be set free. Jesus replied, very, very, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sin, sins is a slave to sin. Jesus is plain about this. And like I said, Romans talks a lot about this. Paul spends a lot of time explaining this. But it's very true that when you allow sin to reign in your life, you become a slave to that very thing. And you're no longer free. That thing is controlling you. It drives a wedge between you and God. It makes you a different person. You can act like you're fine, but deep inside you're dying. And you need to be set free. Jesus goes on and he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. I'm not questioning that. Jesus is not questioning whether they're Abraham's descendants, but he goes on, yet you are looking for a way to kill me. In other words, your descendants by birth, your great-grandfather is you know, in the line of Abraham, your, your dad is in the line of Abraham, but your heart, your heart is not even close to Abraham. You're not even looking to the truth. You're not even seeking truth. You don't want truth. Yet you're looking for ways to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have what you have heard from your father. Whoa, your father. Who's their father? We'll get into that in a second, but here's the point I want to make. Jesus says there's no room, like we did the message series about no vacancy. Do you have room? In your heart, this is the great thing about God. He doesn't want to, He's not expecting you to be perfect. If He expected a perfection, He would have just left it with the Ten Commandments. But you know what? That would leave us hopeless. Because if I stood up here and all the Ten Commandments were right here beside me, where would that leave me? Have I dishonored God? Have I put God first in my life? X, right? I haven't always done that. Have I covered, coveted my neighbor's things? X on that, right? All of us, if we were just left to the Ten Commandments, we would all perish. But the Ten Commandments served a purpose to show us that we aren't perfect. But Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill what we could not do ourselves because he loved us and didn't want us to stay in that state of sin. The question is, do you have room in your heart? Do you have room in your life for what Christ has to say? So many of you and us, I'll include myself in this, we're sometimes afraid to hear what God has to say because we're afraid of change. We're afraid of what God may ask us to do. But I will tell you, as someone that has rebelled in the past and said, no, God, I don't want to be a preacher. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. That when I submit to the authority of God and say, God, 
I want you to do what you want to do in my life, and I want to surrender to your will. When I'm able to do that, God does great things. But when I do selfish things, I'm a selfish person, <laughs> and that leads to death in my heart. I'm not saying I, I'm not trying to paint this picture of, of not being in grace, because I know I am, but I know when I let sin, it, it interferes. It's like the receptors of me and God are not clear. When I let sin reign in my body and reign, do the things I know I shouldn't do, uh, that I do those bad things, that it causes disruption in my relationship with Christ. And I want to make room for Jesus to be a part of my life. And when I do sin, because I still will sin in my life, I want to come to the throne of grace and say, God, forgive me of my sin. Wash away, because I want to have a clear connection between me and you. Verse 39, Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for, for a way to kill me, a man who has told the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not, uh, did not do such things. You are doing the work of your own father. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I have to say. You belong to your father, the devil, who you, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove anything guilty of me guilty of sin? I'm telling the truth. Why don't you believe me? What a powerful statement. Any of us could go up there and do that? Can I come up here and say, uh, have you, has anybody had anything against me? Any sin I've done in my life? Well, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. But Jesus is saying that statement because they can't prove anything he's done that's wrong. Again, his testimony is valid because everything he's done is true. When he says this statement, can I, any of you prove me guilty of any sin? Has there anything, anything I've done in my whole life that you can say I've done something wrong. If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? This is another thing that's very interesting about Jesus, and this is what I love about really diving into Jesus, because I think we as the church can kind of miss this. There's over 300 questions in the, in the Gospels that Jesus asked. Jesus asked a lot of questions. Why? Why did he share so many parables that were sometimes hard to understand? Why? Out of those 300 questions, there's 170-some unique questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. The reason why is because Jesus doesn't want puppets. Jesus doesn't want mind control. The other thing is that there's a technique in counseling called coaching, which I've had some training in that. I should use it more often because it's really neat. But what you do is you help the other person understand you're just there to ask questions. And so you ask them about their goals or why they're meeting you and what's their purpose of being there and just asking some questions. You don't give answers. You just ask questions. In other words, a lot of us have the truth inside. This goes back to the idea that creation 
is proof of God's existence. Because the answer is right there. If you look hard enough. Now, unfortunately, the world doesn't want to see that. They don't want to see that God had any possibility of making the world or creating the universe. But as we continue to dive in, even in just a human being, even just in a cell, the mathematic possibilities of that becoming true, that you could have evolution, it it would take beyond what they're asking for. But you know what creation wants? Just give them more time and it will happen. Give me millions of years. Give me a chance for it to take place. But yet to believe in a God that created things. But the idea is this, God wants you to think independently. There's truth that's there inside all of us that we know there's something wrong. Look at the evil in the world. I know a lot of people will use that argument against God, but why is there evil in the world? Tell me that. If there's not proof that there's some force against God, why is there so much carnage and damage? Isn't mankind have a problem? Isn't there an issue there? that only a loving God could fix. Because anytime you put trust in man, anytime you build a great culture, a great society, a great government, it'll fail every time. You know why? Because there's always gonna be evil intentions with mankind because man's heart is conflicted. It wants to do good. It wants to do something good for others. But then there's this selfish evilness inside that wants to cause destruction. Jesus says, hears, and the question is, do we listen? When we hear his words, when we hear the truth that he speaks, are we listening to it? I think a lot of times we kind of rush scripture, and and a lot of preachers maybe do this too, and hopefully I'll never do this, but I don't want to make scripture say what I want it to say. I want to preach what it says and talk about it. A lot of times we try to use scripture to prove our point rather than looking in the context of why Jesus is saying it in the first place and what it's, what it's really trying to accomplish. Do we really hear Jesus? Do we hear truth? Are we allowing these voices of Satan play with our minds? As I mentioned before, Satan's desire is not to just be worshiped. It's not just that he's looking for Satan worshipers. He doesn't care any path you take as long as it's not the right path. He's the father of lies. His ways are deception, not truth. Another point of just, again, looking at those questions, Jesus asks some important questions. These two questions I I think are so important for all of us to kind of think through. If you're not a Christian here today or watching online, I want to encourage you to really give Jesus a chance. Look at Jesus. Don't look at me. Don't look at someone else, maybe. Maybe somebody else will lead you to that path and kind of open the door for you. But take a good look at Jesus. Don't follow Christ. As I told my kids, I've told my sons and my daughter that I don't want them to follow Christ because me and Shelly follow Christ. I want them to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You look at Jesus and see what you see. Jesus asked this question, who do you people say that I am? And he asked this question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? A lot of people will give a lot of great answers. Jesus is a great prophet. That's what the Muslims believe, that Jesus was a prophet. Good man with good teaching. Just like in the video we saw, some people said, oh, he had a beard and 
He was a cool guy. Who is Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? This statement is found in Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus, if you look and really study the Gospels, you'll see all these questions that he asks. You'll read these parables that he shares and oftentimes doesn't explain the parables. Disciples come to him later and say, uh, Jesus, uh, what, what, what was that all about? I don't really understand. And again, they're still dealing with the struggle of not seeing it spiritually. They're wanting to see it from their perspective, not taking it at the value of where it comes from God and allowing it to work in their heart, in their life. They're not hearing the message that's really there. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Isn't it interesting that they're making false claims against Jesus? One, uh, first of all, you know, let's think about Samaritan. It's like a, you know, it's a bad word in the, in the Jewish community because those are half-breeds. And that's why Jesus talks about the, the good Samaritan is because he's trying to help change that narrative. The woman at the well was a Samaritan. And so he's reaching those people that, that were considered outcasts. Maybe that's the reason why they were upset with him and calling him a Samaritan because they knew he was with Samaritans. Maybe because he shared the story of being, being a, a good Samaritan. Aren't you right in saying you are a Samaritan and it's not true? It's a false claim, but isn't that the father of lies just to throw out enough dirt on you to tear you down, to make all these accusations but not really seek truth? And then saying that he's demon-possessed, are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? You're possessed by a demon. Yet how did he do these works? How did he do these amazing works if it's not from God? In chapter 9, like we talked about last week, the blind man receiving his sight, he recognized the fact, how could this be such a good, how could the devil do this? Take a blind man that was born since he was, a blind since he was born, and help him receive his sight, other than God. And the Pharisees didn't want to hear that story. And they want to keep their narrative. They want to keep focused on this narrative because then they don't have to respond to who Jesus really is. Is that what we do? Try to change the narrative to where it fits our perspective? Or are we open to truth that is truth? <laughs> I am not demon-possessed, Jesus said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. You know, I'm so thankful we have Jesus because if it was me, it'd be so hard, wouldn't it? Like, if you put yourself in Jesus' shoes, wouldn't you get tired of this? To be dishonored like this? It's like Jesus is coming. I'm coming to save you. I've come to rescue you. And yet, you dishonor me. You're calling me demon-possessed. And look at all I've done. I have no sin you can't make any accusations against me. I have done nothing wrong. Honor, the definition of honor is high respect, great esteem, adherence to what is right, or to a conventional standard of conduct. Moving on, 
In verse 52, at this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, and yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, I glorify myself. I, if I glorify myself, my glory has me, means nothing. In other words, I'm not here just talking for myself. I'm talking for God. My Father, who you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. In other words, everything I'm doing is not for my glory. Jesus didn't come. When they were trying to put a, you know, a figure or a statue for Jesus after the transfiguration that happened, where Moses and Elijah came down from heaven and met with Jesus for a little while, Peter was like, hey, let's put a statue. Let's put a, some type of landmark so we can mark this spot. Jesus said, no. It's not about my glory. Jesus didn't come to set up anything here upon earth. You know, even the image I'm using now, we don't know if Jesus looked like that. The images you see of Jesus, we don't know what Jesus looked like, and I think that was on purpose. Because anything we would have taken, we would have made an idol of it. We would have tried to make it something like you had to make a pilgrimage to that statue of the transfiguration. We would have made it more than what it was supposed to be. It says, if, we, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father who you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I had said I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced as the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, the faith that Abraham, that was credited to him as righteousness, is the faith that God wants us to have in him. He wants us to have faith to believe that God is able to do the impossible, that he sent his son to die for our sins, and that we can be with him forever, for eternity. This is, this is where, again, they are so focused on this idea. Verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Verily, truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This statement, I am, is a powerful statement. Why is it so powerful that we should think about this? Is that Jesus says, I am. He's referring to what God said when Moses said, well, who, what should I call you? When I say, let my people go, what guy do I say? Who do I say is the God that's saying this? And what is God's response? I am that I am. That statement means consistency, eternal, forever. This is the one true God. Who else would make that statement but God himself? I am that I am. And so when Jesus says this statement, he says, I am. They know what he's referring to. They know the line he's drawing, that he is the great I am, that he is with God and is God. It says here, I am is the ultimate statement of self Sufficiency, self-existence, immediate presence. 
God's existence is not contingent upon anything else or anyone else. His plans are not contingent upon any circumstance. He promises that he will be what he will be. That is it. In closing this message today, I find myself gravitated to Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. And this is the ESV version. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Truth being presented in my life is this. You think about sheep, you know, Jesus calls us to be sheep, right, as we go witness among wolves. Sheep are not like the type of animal that you would think of as being super confident in themselves like a lion or like uh, maybe even a hippopotamus would be better, right? That'd be more fearsome, right? But no, Jesus calls us to be sheep. Why does he choose the imagery of sheep? Because sheep are humble. They're humble. But he tells us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And wise is making good choices and good decisions. It doesn't mean, you know, this is the beauty of Christianity too. We're not called to be dummies. We're not called to not think and to not, uh, you know, even God himself says, I want to reason with you. Let's talk. Let's have discussion. God wants us to be wise, to make good choices, to make good decisions, make choices that we understand. And he says, innocent as doves. And I love this part, and this is what I want to close with. To be innocent, it means you have no motives other than to seek truth. That you want to be honest, you want to be sincere, you want to be real. You don't have an agenda. You don't have some master plan of how you're going to force people to do something that they don't want to do. When you're innocent, you're just trying to live the truth of Christ in your life. You're not perfect, but you want to be innocent. That there's no, no fakeness, but sincerity and truth in who you are. As we close today, as we sing this song of invitation, I want to invite you from your seat or wherever you are, if you want to come and pray with somebody, we have some Stephen ministers, I'd be more than happy to pray with you. My heart is this, is if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, take a good look at Jesus. Because his attitude, his heart in coming here upon earth was to present to you what God was like. He wanted to show and demonstrate the character of who he was. He wanted to come to set you free. And that freedom comes with belief in him as your Lord and Savior. Recognizing that there is something wrong with all of us. That we all have sin. And that Jesus can set us free. For those of you that are Christians... Don't put blinders on. Don't listen to the enemy because the enemy can trick us all. 
He can get us off task of what's most important, and that's to follow Jesus. We need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Our mission is to let that light that Jesus says, where he says, I'm the light of the world, in chapter 8 here, to become Matthew 5, 14, where it says, you are the light of the world. We want to be his light. We want to bear witness of this light. We want to bear witness of the truth that we've experienced. And so make sure that there's a good connection between you and God. Don't let Satan cause deception, cause you to be focused on the wrong things. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We ask you to just be with us and give us strength. I thank you for your truth that your heart, your attitude was to, to bring truth to people and, and to speak boldly. And, and there was nothing wrong in you at all. And yet they accused your testimony of not being valid, that you were demon-possessed. They didn't see who you truly were. And while some believed, there was a belief of confliction because they still wanted to hold on to what they knew and not be open to what you were saying, that you would come to die for all of us and set us free. Thank you for everything you do for all of us. In your name I pray, Jesus, amen. Would you stand and join us?
we've got a lot of great ministries happening. Uh, I hear that we have a full gym on Saturdays at Tunnel United Methodist with Upward Basketball. We've got Night Shine happening this coming Friday. Again, as we love on these uh, special needs, adults and children will come that have special needs. We want to love on them, but we want to love on their family as well. And so as you serve for that, if you're involved in that, thank you for serving and being part of that. It's just a great opportunity to share Jesus with them. So we have a special request. We're going to ask you to move the chairs. Uh, follow the instructions of the video that you'll see behind me here in just a sec. I think it's already playing, so go ahead and play it. It's fine. The church chair stacking committee. Chair stacking is a very important task, and you have been selected to help us stack some chairs. This is a church chair, loved by many and durable enough to survive a flood. The proper way to lift the chair is by using the convenient bars here and here. Make sure to not lift with your back or else you may injure yourself. The proper way to lift the chair is by bending at your knees and lifting with your legs and you'll be a-okay. The first step to stacking a perfect set of chairs is stacking them five high. Assistants, demonstrate. Alright, this step is very important. Once you have your set of five, you need to stack them front facing the wall. Here at Porterfield Baptist Church, we love our babies so much, we do not want them climbing on the chairs and falling on the ground, hurting themselves. If you find yourself in a situation where there's five chairs stacked perfectly, not up against the wall, make eye contact with the dolly expert so they will move it to a wall. The next step is no scooting. If we find you scooting, this might happen. If you follow the steps in this video, you will be a-okay. Thank you in advance for stacking the chairs. No babies were harmed in the making of this video. Okay, before you go, I think we're leaving this section over here to my left. Sorry, I messed that part up, but we're going to leave this section, but take all these three sections. So just stack them and leave them where they are. Somebody else will come along and move them where they need to go. So let me pray for us and we'll dismiss. And if you could help us stack some chairs right in your area, that'd be great. Lord, I just thank you for everything you do. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for even the youth ministry creating that video last year and doing such a great job with that. Thank you for just what you're doing in the life of this church. We pray that you just help us to always continue to, to do live out our mission statement. That's loving and leading people into a life-changing relationship with you, Jesus. In your precious name, I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.